Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at BYU's International Cinema. Today we're talking about Wong Kar Wai in the Mood for Love. I'm Marila Oskerson, Assistant Director of International Cinema, and I'm joined by Professor Steve Reap from the BYU Asian and Near Eastern Languages Department. Professor Reap teaches Chinese and comparative literature. He specializes in modern and contemporary Chinese literature, film, and culture. Some of his research projects explore the depiction of disability in modern and contemporary Chinese literature, in visual culture, and the concept of mobility in modern Chinese literature in film in regards to disability and gender. It is a pleasure to welcome you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here, Marie-Laure. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's always lovely to to do a podcast with you. So Wong Kar Wai is, I would say, known to our BYU international cinema fans. We've had several films of his and In the Mood for Love, we've shown before. How would you describe his style for someone who does not know this filmmaker? And as well, how does this film fit into his work? His films are rather interesting. They're very different from popular Hong Kong film. Their plots tend to be more loose, and some have characterized them as nonlinear. That is to say, they don't move from a clear beginning to a climax to an end. They also tend to be shot in very bold, beautiful, saturated colors. And this film, probably the peak example of this particular element of his style, He uses music to set a tone and atmosphere in the movies. It plays a very overt role. And he likes to manipulate things like framing, lighting, and things like that to heighten the drama in his movies. And there's a sense of ambiance to the movie. And this particular film is very much a period film. It's not a contemporary film. It's a film definitely and clearly set in the 1960s. And he achieves that very well with the costuming. And costuming plays a key role in this particular movie. The clothing that the the male and female lead wear is very, very much a product of the time. The male protagonist wears the classic dark trousers and white shirt. Many businessmen in Asia still wear that. The color highlight for him are his ties. On the other hand, the female lead wears uh, chongsans, which are a traditional a tight-fitting Chinese dress that were popular in the 60s. And I think through the movie, she probably goes through about 20 different different chongsems. In fact, it's the changing of the chongsem and the ties, oftentimes, that will help us to see passage of time. That's a little bit of a Absolutely. digression. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I thought, oh, maybe th- we're still on the same day. And all of a sudden, she's wearing another dress. And I'm like, oh, it's another day. It's an, another completely different day. This inner sense of time that makes us lose th- the thread of where we at in time exactly and yet i have to point out that there is a few shots of a clock and then at work that clock is very very important and the passage of time is really slow so it's the mixture of this inner world and a very much exterior realistic uh, clock right yes yeah and if you think of the movie it's a movie with almost all interior shots there are very few shots outside And the ones that are shot outside are at nighttime and are probably on a soundstage or on a back lot. And so there's not a lot of realistic shooting. There's a few scenes in a taxi cab, but not a lot of outdoor photography that establishes place, time, space, that sort of thing. Absolutely. 
The historical context is is quite important to to the story. How would you portray the society this film shows? And explain to us some details like why was Hong Kong so crowded in the 60s? What what, what is what is happening? Sure. Hong Kong was a British territory from basically 1899 until around 1997 when it was turned over to the, the People's Republic of China. And so Hong Kong is a unique place because on the one hand it's a British territory, but it's populated almost solely by Chinese people from southern China, from Guangdong province, who migrated over and speak Cantonese. In addition, you have other people, you have a small Indian population that came in from colonial India or post-independence India and worked usually in police, in security, or in other areas. And you have, you know, a population of of others, Europeans, British, of course, who work for the government and for various companies and the like. But the primary population was Chinese. Now, this population was already pretty well established in, say, 1949, when the, the People's Republic of China is founded. But when that happens, there's a, a wave of people who leave Shanghai, particularly, which is a very urban Western city, also an area with you know a lot of foreign presence, and left Shanghai and moved to Hong Kong. People in China went in many directions. A huge number went to Taiwan, some went to North America, some went to Europe. But a sizable population of people in Shanghai went to Hong Kong. And this is true as well for the director, Wang Karwai himself. His parents were from Shanghai. He himself was born in Shanghai and then moved and resettled in Hong Kong. And we see those people represented by the older couples that the younger couples rent rooms from. So these are people who are probably now in their 50s to 60s. Their kids have grown up and moved out. And so to make some extra money, they rent out their rooms. And they do that for these younger Hong Kong couples. Now, the reason, of course, Hong Kong is probably has this high population density is you do have these ways of immigrants. It's also you know, an area with a limited amount of housing. And in those days, they hadn't built all the high-rise housing they have today. That would happen over the course of not just the 60s, but through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and up to the present. But population was very dense. People are living really on, almost on top of each other, and the apartments were not terribly large. I don't know exactly how large they were, but I would say maybe 800 square feet. And oftentimes you'd have a family, maybe with two children living there, possibly an older parent or grandparents living with them too. That explains it all, because this couple moves in next door to another couple, and they're renting a room. They use the kitchen a little bit, but we, we have this sense of the space is, is very much shared. It's a shared space. Can we explore the, the usage of space in this, in this film, whether you want to talk about framing or as well, our characters are passing a lot, but not meeting very much. What can you tell us about space other than this highly populated place? Well, in the, in the movie, in the context of the movie, in the way that Wong Kar Wai films it, the fact that these people live so close together suggests that people are pushed together, pushed into relationships. And we have that inferred by the fact that Mr. Chow or Mr. Zhou and Ms. Su, also known as Mrs. Chan, their spouses are having an affair. And that's only hinted or suggested. And it's intriguing in the film that Wang Karwai never shows their faces. We see their backs, we see their torsos, we see 
different parts of them, but we don't see them fully. And I think the intent is that he doesn't want us to identify with them. He's focusing on this particular couple who are left trying to make sense of the fact that their spouses are having this illicit relationship. And the film seems to be pushing them together. We notice, for example, there's a scene very early on, and, and Shanghai people love to play mahjong or mahjong. And uh, that's something that's not just unique to Shanghai, but Shanghai people are really known for it. And so there's a mahjong scene. And you, if you remember early in the movie, it shows the, the women coming in and out of the room as they go to get things. And the film, it's interesting, the camera is positioned quite low. There's this kind of triple meter bump, 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 bump figure going on in the soundtrack. And the camera and Wong Kar Wai slows the scene down. It's shot in slow motion. And the camera lowers, so we see the women moving in and out of the room. We see the men. We, see, we do see the face of Mr. Chow and Mrs. Su but not the spouses. And they're shown coming in and out. We see them going and knocking on each other's doors and borrowing books. And the camera's pulled in quite tight. So they're in the doorway. The camera's almost shooting right over the shoulder or right next to them. Or probably most memorably, the scenes where Ms. Sue goes out to get noodles. She goes out to get food from a nearby stall. And it shows her walking up and down the stairs, passing each other, all shot in slow motion, all with this very seductive, beat and then a violin melody that's that's laid on top of it that's very very romantic in a sense very beautiful too yes we learned a lot in this film about women in the 60s living in hong kong and their status we see modern and traditional values and how they interact with each other what can you tell us about what kind of expectations are on women at that time about their roles and what what is the society of Hong Kong in the 60s, what does it look like when you're a woman? Well, it depends kind of generationally. Older women probably didn't work as much. So women, say, of the age of the landlords that are renting out the rooms, probably didn't hold jobs. They probably were housewives. They might have social groups that they did things with, but probably didn't work. On the other hand, the, the generation of women that Ms. Sue represents were women who were going into the workplace, working, having careers of their own. The careers are probably not that different from what you would have seen women doing in, in the U.S., perhaps Europe, in the 1960s. So secretarial work, working in the service sector such as travel agencies, those type of jobs, working in food service, were the primary jobs that a woman would have. Women probably had yet to become executives in Hong Kong, though I can't speak with complete authority on that. But certainly, Ms. Su represents this kind of woman in the workplace, in this case, working as a, a secretary for a small company. And this was something that was, you know, becoming more and more common, particularly for women who had yet to have children or whose children maybe had just grown up. But what's unique in this particular movie, I think, is that still we see in the film the fact that even though she does have a career of her own, clearly her career should not overshadow her spouses and that she still held a very traditional standards. There's a scene where the woman that she's renting a room from basically says, you know, she's kind of hinting that she sees this relationship beginning to form between her and Mr. Chow. 
and she's kind of, you seem to be out a lot, you know, she's kind of questioning her. Well, it's interesting that she doesn't question the males and males, of course, never do get questioned. In Chinese society, there's a, clearly a double standard for, for um, male and female conduct, chastity and things like that. And so while men frequently would have relationships, you know, outside of their marriages, women typically would be held in contempt for that. And that's a that's a problematic dual standard that's that's applied to women, and we see that happen in the movie. Yes, and we see as well that Mrs. Chan, in many ways, arranges for for things for her own boss so that he can have an extramarital relationship, and she makes things all good with with the wife calling her and making excuses for her boss. So we see that double standard at many levels in the intimacy of those couples, but as well in the public life that that they have. Yeah, that's interesting because we do see that played out both in her life with her husband and also with her supervisor. And there's this feeling as you look at the expressions on her face when the, the boss says, you know, just tell her, just make an excuse up for me. Clearly, it's not the first time that one's happened. And so she's forced to lie for her boss, knowing that she herself has been victimized in the same way. In this film, there is an aspect to the reality in contrast with role-playing. We see the couple role-playing what the infidelity of their spouses might be. And we're very confused about what is real and what is not. Because that sometimes it's like, oh my goodness, she's talking to her husband. And then we realize, oh no, that's Mr. Show. So what do you make of this, like this, this game between what is real and what is not in this film? Well, it's interesting, I, you know, this idea of reality and what is not is so, I mean, it's not unique to Chinese culture, but it certainly shows up in Taoism. It shows up in great works of literature, like The Dream of Red Mansions, a book I'm actually teaching this week and taught today, and that whole theme came up. That's something which is part, we could say on one level, is very much at the core of Chinese culture. At the second level, it's certainly a 20th century phenomenon as people are reflecting on the traumas brought by war, by economic depression, by a variety of different traumatic events. The question is, what do we make of those? And maybe the film looks at it, I suppose, from that perspective. I think for the couple, if we're looking at it solely on personal level, they're trying to make sense of an event which is terribly troubling, which is their betrayal by their spouses. And they're trying to figure out, you know, what does this mean and what does this entail? And I think of that scene in the restaurant where they're having a meal. And that's one of those scenes where the clothing changes kind of indicate that time is really passing, that they're probably have engaged in multiple meals. And the camera work in that scene is really quite interesting. There's a lot of, she begins asking him some questions. I'm like, you know, where did you get that tie that you're wearing? That's interesting. And he asks, well, where did you get the handbags? Because they realize that, I, I may have it mixed up, but those are the evidence that they have that there's a, some kind of infidelity going on. And as the camera is taking stock of that attempt to make sense of this you know, very traumatic event, the sense of betrayal, the camera moves from basically a series of shots to pans, very fast pans, where the camera, where did you get this? Boom, then the camera flips over, and then it flips back, oh, and it doesn't do that very much. You know, that type of panning is not something that Wong Kar Wai usually 
doesn't seem to be using much in the film, but he uses it in that scene to show this moment of, you know, sudden awareness, asking the difficult question. And so I think we can see it maybe in some kind of larger cultural sense, but I think mainly it's a personal concern over how to make sense of this, this, this traumatic event that this couple is experiencing. Very good. Thank you. So this film deals a lot with infidelity and faithfulness and this love that they have that they are leaving, both of them. What can we make of this? Is there like a greater message than just a love story where the passion is is never fully expressed, although the tension is is definitely there and this love is definitely there. Well, what can we make of this this other couple who consumes their love, they're very unfaithful in so many ways, and then the couple that we're following, that we're falling in love with as well. They're just so wonderful. What can we make of this strong faithfulness to their spouses who are not worthy of, of their love? Well, it's interesting because in a lot of movies, we follow the people who are having the affair. We follow the movie, and I can't say this is true of all films, but in a lot of films, we follow that moment, the people who have made the choice to for infidelity. In this film, it's a film which, even though it's a very modern film in a, in a very stylistic sort of way, it's a film which also goes back to this traditional idea of what it means to be loyal. You know, the fact that Wong Kar-wai shows the couple that's having an affair only peripherally never shows them a full view of them. We rarely get more than a few words from them. They don't really ever get depicted. The film naturally is kind of calling for this interesting probing of, of loyalty, of, of fidelity. And the fact that this couple, you know, as the film develops, even though they do become very close, even though, for example, he's a newspaper reporter, but he's always wanted to write a martial arts story. And that's actually very much a turn to the very famous martial arts novelist, Louis Cha, whose pen name was Jin Yong. He's easily the most well-known martial arts novelist of the mid-20th century. Like the film characters, he was a transplant from China who came down to Hong Kong became involved in the newspaper industry as an editor and held a very high-profile editing job and then wrote on the side serialized martial arts novels, which appeared initially in newspapers and then were published separately. And these are classic works. So what Mr. Zhou or Mr. Chow is doing is very much kind of along the line of that famous writer. But those novels are also about ethics, about doing what is morally upright making the right choices because in these type of novels that are called knight errant or wuxia novels the point is is that mainstream china society has lost its moral compass and so we can no longer rely on the government necessarily or local officials or whatever for justice so we have to seek justice outside of that framework and so hence we have these knights errant who go around who still espouse traditional virtues and values, Confucian values, for example, and others, and are acting to help people who either can't get help because mainstream society doesn't provide it or because they're so marginal. Poor women, people who are in the marginal areas of Chinese society, they appeal to these people for help. But the stories do involve in you know certain ethical frameworks. And that you know, may be a connecting point too, because clearly in this movie, 
the relationship between them is one that's very platonic. And she eventually, you know, we see them at the end in that hotel room that he basically rents. I think it's room, is it 2046? I'm trying to remember. That's the name of the sequel to the movie. But that's where they meet. But their relationship is one of fidelity. Beautifully said. Thank you so much. A word about the music. The music is absolutely beautiful. It really belongs to the film in so many ways. What, what can you tell us about the music? Well, it's interesting. There's kind of a blend. We have, on the one hand, you know, new non-diegetic film music that's been made. And that music is very, very manipulative when I teach my film classes. And my students find the music very provocative, partially because it has that very clear beat. And it's accompanied by shots that are very romantic and in their own way, very seductive, rich colors, the women's torsos and the chipao dresses. The film is very suggestive. Nothing is ever shown, but in its own way, it's very suggestive. The music adds to that a great deal. And so we have that type of music and it's very thematic and it's very used very systematically to suggest this possibility of romance and relationship between the two of them. Because we see it in that early scene. We see it in those scenes in the stairs where they go out to get food and they meet the two ships that pass in the night was the term you used, I think, or one of those terms. And we have that. And then on top of that, we also have popular music from the 1960s and primarily vocals by Nat King Cole. Nat King Cole was at this time one of the leading male singers when they answered the phone, they, they called the, 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 the famous round Capitol Record Tower in Hollywood, I think it's at Hollywood and Vine, the house that Nat built because he was, his recordings were so popular up until the Beatles. And they used to answer the phone at Capitol Records, uh, uh, Capitol Records, the home of Nat King Cole. It's interesting because we don't have any of his English language songs, which we're all probably very familiar with. Instead, we get songs primarily in Spanish. And there may be a song even in Portuguese, that I'm not sure because I'm, I'm a Chinese speaker and not a, either Spanish or Portuguese, but certainly there's songs, you know, the one perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. One could probably look into the lyrics and the music and see why in particular Wong Kar Wai picked that particular music. First, of course, it's to set the mood of the 60s. Second, I think it goes back to the idea of this Hong Kong being very international. It's not canto pop or Cantonese popular music of that era. It's not Mandarin and it's not even English. None of the primary languages of Hong Kong. It's in a romance language, but that's romantic, I suppose. And maybe that adds something to it too. Well, having all that background, we'll let our students decide, I guess, what, what they think about the music and how, how it helps the film and the romance that it depicts. Anything else that you would like our students to notice in this film? What would you like them to get out of their watching this film? Well, I hope you just enjoy a great filmmaker at work. This is really one of Wong Kar Wai's best films. You know, he begins making films in the 1980s. He still makes films today. It's kind of at the middle, the apex of his career. It's beautifully shot. Just enjoy it. Enjoy the use of color. Don't be put off by the fact that the plot doesn't seem to be as clear as you might expect or as linear. And certainly don't be put off by the fact that there's a lot of questions you'll have at the end. I think that's the sign of a director who wants to make us ask some questions. And you can find great joy in uncertainty as much as you can in plot resolution. 
And so this film leaves a lot of questions on the table, questions about the relationship, what happens, and the fact that some relationships, frankly, don't work out. But the movie raises a lot of these questions and does so very beautifully. So discuss this film. Discuss this film with, with the people you, you watch it with and, and enjoy it. Well, thank you, Steve, for this wonderful, enlightening um, conversation. Our podcast is produced by International Cinema and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We're solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here, as we do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Devin Glenn, and our sound engineer, Marina Ekstrom-Pratt. We would also like to acknowledge the musical talents of Johnny Stallings, who wrote and recorded the music for the podcast. Thank you very much, Steve. It's always a pleasure to have you on our podcast. It's always a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's always good to have you. See you in 250 of the Kimball Tower. 